0: Let's go to the Word, and we're going to go to Matthew uh, chapter 1, and this is going to be a two-part series, it's a Christmas series that I'm beginning today, it's called The Experience, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Stand with me for the reading of the Word. The word of our Lord, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the uh, angel had commanded him, and took to him his wife, who did not know her, <clears throat> Till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we open up our hearts, Lord God. We open our ears, we open our eyes. Lord, we don't want to be people, Lord God, who Jesus spoke about, who have eyes, but they don't see, and ears, but they don't hear. <clears throat> Lord God, we humble ourselves before you, we come to your most holy word, Lord God, believing that it is truly the word of God, revelation from God, That not only was given 2,000 years ago or years before, Lord God, but is given to us today through the Holy Spirit and has the power to transform us, change us, and make us into the people, Lord God, that You have called us to be. To bring blessing, peace, and joy into our lives. So, Lord God, we humble ourselves before You. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray, Lord God, do Your thing in us today. Your will be done. Amen. So, when we come... To the story of the birth of Jesus, you know, it's a story of wonder. It's a story of beauty. It's a story of excitement. It's a story of joy, a story of peace. It's filled with thrill that we look at the Lord, right? The Lord of the Nativity. And in the midst of the the joy and the peace, there's turmoil, there's confusion, there's evil. There's wickedness, there's sin, there's darkness, there's death, there's murder. And in the midst of of that darkness, there is the light that shines forth from the Lord of life. The wonder wonder of the Bible, you have 66 books written over the course of 2,000 years by 40 different authors. Most of whom never knew each other written on three different continents, written by people from different nations, and yet it reads like there's one author. If you've read through it, you know that. It reads like one author wrote right all those 66 books, and you have this continuous flowing theme and purpose through uh, this uh, amazing book. The book is an integrated message system, if you understand that. You need to read it in its entirety and come to understand it if you're going to understand it. And it's actually, as it's integrated, uh, right? There's not one book on the resurrection. There are multiple passages and multiple chapters on the resurrection. But as you study the Bible, you put it all together, and the Holy Spirit leads you, and you get a very comprehensive understanding of the Scriptures. Uh, the Bible is is again an amazing book in that. When you're reading the Bible, it speaks to you directly. It's the living Word of God. Jordan Peterson, who I believe is one of the smartest men walking on this earth right now, if you've never read a book by him or listened to him on YouTube, he will blow you away. I think he's a man who speaks the truth and makes a lot of sense. He had gone to the Bible Museum in Washington and began to inquire. He was an atheist. And as he began to inquire and to learn about the Bible and read it, something that, that really kind of knocked him over was that he found himself in each and every narrative, each and every chapter, and each and every story that's in the Scriptures. You find yourself there. Sometimes it's flattering and sometimes it's unflattering. Right? Some, sometimes right? you may feel really good about where you are in the story and sometimes you may feel really bad about where you are in the story. At times it can be incredibly convicting. The birth of Jesus really is a picture of life. It's a picture of our lives. And as you look at it, you find yourself in the story. And you experience the story. So if you think about the people in the story of the birth of Jesus, right... They're all experiencing, right, life. And there's this emotional, there's this psychological, there's this spiritual experience that they're having. There's thrill and there's tragedy. There's joy and there's sorrow. There's confusion and there's decision. So as we enter into it, as we live here in New Jersey, right, in the year 2023, and we enter into the story of the nativity, you will find yourself in the story. So, let's look, and we're going to focus for the most part today on Joseph, and we're going to focus on Mary next week, and of course, we will always be focused on the Son of God. First thing I want you to see in the story, there is crisis. Joseph the carpenter of Nazareth, who becomes the stepfather of Jesus, the Messiah? As you enter into the story that we just read in Matthew 1, he is in the crisis of his life. Now, there are crises that happen to us that are caused by a number of, of different things. Satan can bring crises into our lives. This is not Satan bringing crises into the life of Joseph. We at times can do dumb things unwise things, stupid things, right? And we bring crises into our own lives. I think for the most part, in working with people for the past 40 years, that's where most crises happen. They are self-induced. Bad decisions, bad choices. There are crises that happen at times because God brings them into our lives. At times, He disciplines us. And that discipline is something that He does out of love. And then there are times where there are crises that simply happen because we live in a fallen world. It's not directly from Satan. It's not something that God is doing directly in our lives. It's not something that we've even brought upon ourselves. We just live in a falling world, right? We are all wasting away. We are all terminal. We're all going to die. The crises that Joseph is going through right now was not caused by his sin, was not, again, caused by the devil, was not something that God had directly done to him to discipline. It was a crisis that Joseph was being drawn into to accomplish God's plan. God was going to take Joseph and he's going to bring him through this very dark valley, though it's fairly momentary, to lead him out to an Mountaintop of eternal light. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, crisis is defined as a time of intense difficulty, trouble, danger. Crisis is a time of pain, a time of confusion. It's a time of tears. It's a time of hurt. So here is this young couple and God chose these two absolutely exceptional young people. Two incredibly young people to be the parents. One, the stepfather, and the other, the biological mother of his son. Joseph, the stepfather. He is a faithful man, he is a godly man, he is a man of courage, he he exhibits in the first couple of chapters of Matthew the four fundamental characteristics and traits of a godly man. He is the protector of his family, the provider of his family, the priest of his family, and he is the prophet of his family. He is is a, a godly man and Mary. Mary is blessed beyond beyond all women. She is highly favored. She is special, she is unique, she is humble, she is kind, she is compassionate, and she's a woman after God's own heart. Two very special people who are in love with each other. Two young people who are in love with each other, they are engaged to be married. The Jewish ancient engagement period, betrothal period, and wedding consisted essentially of four stages the choosing of the bride, the engagement, in Hebrew the arusen, the wedding ceremony, and then the wedding celebrations. The first stage was the choosing of the bride, which, which could happen when the children were very young, the marriage could be arranged. But most times when the man reached uh, marriageable age he saw a woman, a girl that he was attracted to, that he liked, they might have had some contact together, and he would go to his parents and he would ask the parents to arrange the marriage with the woman. Samson, that's what Samson did with his parents. If you remember, he was a little forceful with it and he said to his father, go get me that woman. But I believe this is something that Joseph did. Joseph said, well, there's this really beautiful, godly woman. Her name is Mary. Can you arrange the marriage? And I believe the marriage was arranged. When they then would get to that point where the marriage would soon, again, be officially, okay, done, they entered into engagement. In engagement, they were brought together, they are both again marriageable age, and the groom formally proposed to the prospective bride, and he would present to her what is called a ketubah. and a ketubah was a beautifully decorated contract, a document, with essentially the terms of marriage, where he would be declaring to his future bride his consecration to her, his devotion to her, his faithfulness to her. and. Then the groom would offer her a gift, and you see that with Isaac. Think of it in Genesis 24, when Isaac proposed to Rebekah, he gave her a gift. If If you think of Luke chapter 15, the wedding necklace. Remember, it talks about the woman who loses a precious coin of her wedding necklace. That wedding necklace to the ancient Hebrew people was the equivalent of a wedding ring. Something very precious. So he would present her with those gifts. And then the groom would pour a glass of wine and he would offer it to his potential bride. If she took the wine and drank it, she was saying, I agree to be married to you. If she refused the wine, she had that freedom not to be married to the man. So Mary had accepted the glass of wine and the proposal of Joseph, so they were engaged. The engagement is is where this entire story takes place. The wedding ceremony has not occurred yet. In the wedding ceremony, they would be brought before a rabbi. The chupa, the the curtain that would cover them, was symbolic of their lives being covered by the Lord. Uh, They would drink wine, again a symbol of dedication to each other. They would wear white. The bride specifically would wear white, which symbolized her modesty, her humility, and her inward beauty. And, um, and they would be declared husband and wife. By the way, there are people who have come to living word through the years who are living together and are not married. And um, you are not married in the eyes of God if you are living together. I just want to assure you of that. You'll say, oh, well, you know, we're husband and wife. You're not and I've even had people come here and say, well, you know what? Just shacking up together makes us husband and wife. That's what's, uh, one couple, they came to me and said, well, that's what's in the Bible. People just got together, they started sleeping together, they shack up together, and they're married. No, they're not. The, the ancient Hebrews, they, they had a wedding ceremony. Where did Jesus go to do his first miracle? The wedding supper, right? In Cana of Galilee. So there, there was an official wedding ceremony. That would happen. And this is what again, this is what Joseph and Mary are waiting for. When the wedding ceremony occurred, then they would have a wedding celebration. And that celebration could go on for seven days. Feasting and dancing. They the the Sudant mitzvah, okay, the, the fellowship, the eating together. So Mary and Joseph, again, they're looking forward to that day. So here they are in the engagement stage, and Mary comes to Joseph. They're both filled with hope. They're both filled with promise. They're both excited about the life that they're going to have together. So Mary comes to Joseph. She says, there's something I have to tell you. Joseph smiles, right? He smiles. He loves this girl. He goes, Well, you know, Jesus, Mary, what do you have to tell me? I'm pregnant. But, 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 it's from God. It's the Holy Spirit who has done this. What happens to Joseph? His heart drops. You ever get blindsided? played sports, you know what it is to get on a football field to get blindsided? Driving in your car and somebody T-bones you? He just, he just got the T-bone of his life. His heart is broken. you ever somebody break your heart? His, his heart has been broken. His dreams have been dashed. His hope has suddenly vanished before his eyes. And his sunrise has turned into darkness. And bang! that door has suddenly been shut on his life. I want to tell you this. When God shuts a door, don't stand in front of it looking at it. You can spend years doing that. You can basically go to your grave standing there looking at a door that has been closed because when God closes a door in your life, he will always open another one, or more than one. So Joseph enters into this crisis. I want to say, look at look at that picture. Some of you right now are are in the midst of crisis in your life, and maybe you're in a crisis with your spouse or somebody you deeply love. You see the tree in the middle. God is right in the midst of that crisis. When people come to me, counsel, and they come and talk to me and ask me for prayer, and I know they're going going through a crisis, and you know God is in the midst of your crisis, whatever it is. He's he's right there. He wasn't blindsided, though you maybe have been blindsided, though you didn't see it coming. He saw it coming, and God is right there in the midst. He's in the midst of the confusion. He's in the midst of the pain. He's in the midst of the grief. He's in the midst of the sorrow. Try to quiet your heart and listen because you will hear his still small voice whispering words of comfort, words of hope, and words of wisdom. So, Joseph proceeds in the midst of crisis and he starts to just get on the fringe of falling into cynicism. And if you look at at verse 19, it says, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Cynicism is the refusal to trust. It's the refusal to believe. It's a lack of faith. And let me just say this. Joseph is having a moment of cynicism. He he didn't believe God. Right, and Mary said, well, this is what God is doing. And he didn't believe Mary of what had happened to her. He didn't believe in the miracle. He didn't believe in the virgin birth. Yet in the midst of him kind of just sliding into cynicism, he still has compassion. There's still gentleness. There's kindness in the midst of of the conflict. Now, according to the law, Deuteronomy chapter 22, 23 through 24, he could have had Mary stoned. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in the town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge the evil from among you. He could have had her stoned. What he, what he chose to do, again in this cynical moment was to do what was instructed by Moses in Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. That word uncleanness, he has found that she is not a virgin. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. By the way, the Pharisees, what they did was, they took this concept of uncleanness, and they turned it into, if a man marries a woman and he doesn't like the way she looks, or he doesn't like the way she makes love, or he doesn't like the way that she cooks for him, or cleans the house, then he can easily divorce her. So Jesus is in conflict with the Pharisees. What the passage intentionally meant, if a man marries a woman and he finds out she's not a virgin, he can divorce her. Giving her a certificate of divorce, which was again, it was a a law of compassion instead of publicly humiliating her and seeing her killed. And that's what Joseph chose to do in his moment of cynicism. Let me share something with you. In the book of, <clears throat> in the Word, what you see is, you see people who are essentially in denial. And then you see people who are who are cynical. And you see that in the scriptures, and you see that in, in, in life. Two paradigms, two essentially mindsets, rooted belief systems, rooted value systems. You think about this, our belief systems are, are they essentially are, are operating systems. And if you use, if you use um, Mac OS X, right, Windows, by Microsoft, that's an operating system. If you're using that on your computer, you can't operate beyond that unless you put a different system on your computer. Well we have systems that are operating in our mind and essentially they basically confine us, they limit us. And these are our two types of mental operating systems. You have essentially denial. People who are in denial, they view the world as a playground. They essentially are are naive. And blind to reality. That's usually blind to reality about themselves. Blind to the reality about the world behind them. If you you think of the church of Laodicea, which is the last church at the end of the age, which is the period we're in, folks. We're in the seventh stage, the seventh church stage. The church of Laodicea, right, they think they're saved and they're not. They think that Jesus is with them, but he's on the outside knocking on the door. They think they're going to heaven, but they think they're actually going to hell. And they think they're right, but they're actually wrong. And that is denial. Denial is a dangerous place to be. Because when crisis hits, and somebody has been living in denial, they are totally unprepared, spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically. And what happens is they break down, and then they begin to slide into cynicism. A cynic is a person who has a dark view of life. They have a dark view of God. They are people who, basically, they're angry at God. They'll blame God. In fact, they'll come to a point where they'll even just seek to eliminate God totally from their consciousness and live like there is not a God. The cynic essentially is hopeless and um, he is greatly limited by his cynicism. I'll say this to you. It's better to have a little cynicism than to be in total denial. It's better to just to have a little, because the person in denial, they're just, I mean, let me tell you, when the crap hits the fan, can't handle it. They break down. Everything breaks down. You see, the marriage breaks down, the family breaks down, I mean, every, everything breaks down when the crap hits the fan of, again, the person in denial. The cynic will be more prepared, but cynicism... And extreme cynicism is a very dangerous place to be. We live in a very cynical world. And there's a lot of cynicism in the church. A lot of people in the church, they look at the world right now and they think the world is going to the devil. I want to tell you something. The world ain't going to the devil. The world is going to God. You need to read the last three chapters of the book of Revelation and see that the world ain't going to the devil. The devil loses. The the, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. Righteousness wins. Jesus is victorious. And the righteous go to be with him forever and ever. So, drop your cynicism. Joseph is hurt. He's hurting. He's dealing with mega disappointment. He's slipping in this moment of cynicism. He doesn't believe. He doesn't trust. How do you overcome cynicism? How do you overcome denial? The third is courage. Courage. How is cynicism overcome? It's overcome with courage, and it's a courage that flows from faith and belief. So look back at the story in verse 20, but while he thought about these things, I just want to say what Joseph did, and this is a good thing. When you are going through crisis, one of the worst things you can do is make rash decisions. When you're, when you're going through crisis, you start making really rash, dumb choices. And I'll tell you something, you just dig your hole deeper and deeper. And people come to me and they're in the midst of a crisis and say, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do this, maybe... This. No, no, no. The last thing you need to do is make any kind of rash decision. Joseph, he thought about these things. He thought through them. You know what he, ch- he chose to do? He chose to put his foot on the response brake. Instead of the reaction brake. Or the reaction gas pedal. He chose to respond instead of to react. And he, he was thinking about these things. And then he drifted off into a deep sleep. A painful sleep. And then notice what it tells us. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you. Notice, do not be afraid. Here comes the word of faith. And again, where does it lead to? It leads to courage. To take Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord to the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Isaiah chapter 7, 14, the promise of the virgin birth. And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she brought forth a firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. He receives the revelation. Here comes, here comes the word of God. Isaiah seven fourteen: The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. There comes the revelation. He receives the revelation. He puts his faith in it. What happens to him? He becomes courageous. He becomes strong. There is a direct correlation between unbelief and cowardice. There is a direct correlation between unbelief and weakness. And there is a direct correlation between faith and courage, and faith and strength. And I can tell you that in working with men and working with women, it's very evident when you get down to the root of what's going on in their heart of hearts. In Matthew chapter 8.26, again, this is reiterated throughout the Scripture. But he said to them, Jesus' words, Why are you fearful, O oh, you of little faith? And he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. Faith produces courage. True faith will always produce courage. And it is, it is a courage to do what is right. To stand up for what is right. To speak out for what is right. To fight for what is right. Faith produces strength, it produces power, and it produces courage. Look at Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Joshua is standing on the other side of the Jordan River, getting ready to lead the people into the Promised Land. On the other side of the river are the Ites, right? The Canaanites, the Perizzites, and all the other Ites. On the other side of the river are these huge strongholds like Jericho. On the other side of the river, there are giants, these big, huge warriors who are waiting for Israel to come in. God speaks the word into Joshua's heart. The word of faith. And notice here. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Faith received, right? The word of God. And that produced courage. And he led them in, And he wiped out all the ites. Tore down the strongholds. And got rid of most of the giants. Mark chapter 5:36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. Over and over again. Right? True faith will produce courage, and courage kills cynicism. Now, last point today: Challenge. Again, the door of Joseph's life is closed. But he has the sense to look, to see that God has left some other doors open. And God here challenges him to enter into an adventure. I want to tell you this, just my walk, and I've been walking with the Lord since I'm 23 years old. It's 42 years. My walk with the Lord has been God challenging me over And over and over again. Challenging me to grow, challenging me to trust, challenging me to be the man that he's called me to be, to be the husband he's called me to be, to be the father he's called me to be, to be the grandfather he's called me to be, to be the pastor he's called me to be. Challenge after challenge after challenge. At at times to do things that I was fearful to do. To go places that I was fearful to go. But always, again, as I stay in his word, that courage came to be able to do and to be and to go where God wanted me. Those places, special places. So here is this challenge that is given to Joseph. And I want to again break this down and show you this. Joseph met the challenge. First, you see Joseph operating as a prophet. Every man is called to be the prophet of his home. And if you don't have a home, you need to be preparing yourself to one day be the prophet of your home. In Matthew chapter 1, 24 through 25, then Joseph being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. What did the angel tell Joseph to call the babe? You know what a prophet is? A prophet is somebody who receives the word of God and then proclaims it. Simple. Whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah, Malachi, they receive the word of God and they proclaim it. The angel gives him the instruction. Now, the ultimate proclamation that Joseph made, that he received from the angel, that the name of the babe, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would be Jesus, you see that in the actual dedication of Jesus, the circumcision of Jesus. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given to the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The naming of the child is the responsibility and job of the father. Remember Zacharias with the name of John? Remember he couldn't speak? It was he that gave the official name, John, to John the Baptist. If, if you look at, at Scripture, you will see this. You will see this, uh, you know over and over again in the Word of God. Abraham, right, circumcised Isaac. When Moses refused to circumcise his sons, you know the story? Right? Zipporah, she did it. That's what happens when a man refuses to do the responsible things that God has called him to do. Then his poor wife has to take over. And she was so angry because she was kind of, I don't think she was really walking close with the Lord because she took the foreskins and she threw them at Moses. <laughs> you ever have your wife throw something at you? Did you ever have your wife throw something at you? How would you like foreskins being, she threw them at his feet. But that's still kind of gross, right? Here, your foreskins, you, you, Father of blood she called him a name but it was it was the responsibility. So here Joseph at the dedication of Jesus circumcision that's where he places the official name. he proclaims it. Now second, you have prophet and then you have protector. this man protected his family. I say this to you when we think, when we think about protection and I'm into protection. People, you know, I'm into self-defense. I'm not into self-defense. I'm into self-offense. I will, I will do everything I can to move away from a conflict. And when I can no longer move away, I ain't moving away anymore. I'm going right through you. So I think there's a place for that, protecting your family as a man. But there's a whole lot more times that you're going to be protecting your family. In fact, the, the odds of you ever, and ever having to protect your family in physical violence is going to be rare. But there are going to be times, over and over again, as a father, as a mother, where you're going to have to protect your children. So here's an interesting uh, passage here. In Matthew chapter 2, 19 through 23, it says, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. And then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and they came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that he might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. Simply, what is he doing here? The Holy Spirit is speaking to him, right? and he's being guided by the Lord to avoid dangerous places. He's protecting his family simply by obeying God. When when we are obeying God, we're in a place where we're going to bring a level of protection over our marriages and over our children. When we are disobeying God, we are putting ourselves in a place where not only we're putting ourselves in jeopardy, but we're putting our children in jeopardy and even the future generations. No one sins unto themselves. You realize that? You may be committing your little sins and thinking nobody sees you. Nobody sins unto themselves. How many times do you see the politicians getting caught, right? They get caught in their their little secret sins that they thought nobody could see. I just heard this morning some leader, it wasn't a congressman or senator, having sex on the actual floor of the Congress, right, thinking nobody's going to see me. <laughs> Look at commerce <Congress> everywhere. <laughs> but we don't sin unto ourselves. Our sins are like throwing a stone into a a still pond that has a ripple effect. And that ripple effect, it flows. It flows over the marriage. It flows over the children. It flows over the grandchildren. And folks, it could be flowing over your future generations. Nobody sins unto themselves. Joseph, again, protects his family simply by obeying God. He is the priest. A priest makes intercession for his family. He makes intercession for his wife, for his children, for his grandchildren. He prays over the womb of his pregnant wife. He prays over the children as they lie asleep. He prays diligently. He prays consistently. He prays passionately. He prays daily. He makes intercession. Look what it tells us here. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived at the womb. And when the days of purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him right on the eighth day to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And as is written In the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and and two young pigeons. Now, in in the scriptures, you have the Levitical priesthood. But you also see God called all of Israel to be priests in Genesis chapter 19. We are all called to be priests, New Testament priests. And we are all called to make intercession. This, this beautiful passage is just simply Joseph, right, who was of the tribe of Judah, Mary, right, of the tribe of Judah, operating as priest and priestess, doing again what the Word of God said, and bringing Jesus, right, to be circumcised. And what's interesting, this act that they're doing, this is the first shedding of blood of the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. But it's a picture, just a simple picture of a man who is operating as a priest. And that is something that we are all called to do. The last is Joseph as a provider. He was the carpenter. Carpenter tecton. People say, well, they didn't build wooden houses, right? <laughs> How many of those archaeological sites I've walked through, through the years in Israel, um, carpenter, he could work with wood. There was some wood. You know, he could make a bridge. He could make a chariot. They're, they're usually highly skilled, right, workers. But technically, for the most part, they worked with stone. They were masons. They built houses. And they were men who were, again, highly skilled. Joseph passed on the trade to Jesus. Who is also called a, a, a tecton. But he, he provided. Not only did he provide for his family financially, he provided for them emotionally. He provided with them security. He provided stability. He provided boundaries. You see him, you know, again, operating. He he is he is truly a priest, he is truly the prophet. He is the protector, but he is the provider. And I want you to just stop. And I'll just say this to you: What is happening in our world? First of all, people outside the church—they don't have a clue about this stuff. The the indoctrination of men in our culture—and you know—I'll give you a good example. You watch sitcoms and movies; men are portrayed as fat, lazy, selfish, right? That—that's the way men are. And the women are usually portrayed as the strong, wise ones. So you look at Homer Simpson, he's a perfect example. I don't, I've, never, I've never watched the show, but I, I, see, I see again the portrayal of men. That's Homer, right? He is not a priest, he is not a prophet, he is not a protector, right? He's not a provider. And that's in the church too. And what's sad is when that happens, who does it fall upon? God bless you ladies. God bless every one of you in this church. Because I know some of you right now, you're carrying the ball. Because, hey, your husband hasn't fumbled the ball. He hasn't picked up the damn ball in years. See, the wife, right? She's, She's the priest. He don't pray. She's the prophet. She's the one bringing them to the church. She's the one who's teaching them the word of God. She's out there providing. Maybe he works, but she's out there providing with him. And she's the protector. She's the one who's really looking over the protection of the children Because the men have abdicated, they've refused the responsibility that God has given them. And that is a crisis that this country is in. So when you see the crimes that are happening from the youth who are going in and raiding stores and shooting each other in our cities, the problem is is that dad ain't around anymore. Because when I look at that, if I was out there doing that, you know where my father's foot would have been? I'd be walking around like this right now. My son, Frank, I'll tell you something. I could count on three fingers the three moments of difficulty that he gave me. And a um, great kid. If there's a, a father looking at a son, he's, he's the dream son. Young man of character, integrity, he's a great husband, great father, police officer. When he was little, he had switched schools. He was in seventh grade, and what were those things that they would send messages back and forth? Uh, what what is it called? IMs, Iams? Yeah, they were sending messages, and the, some kids attacked him, so he got back attacking them, and the girls and the boys, and and I end up finding out that he had said some really derogatory things to this one girl. I took him by the hand and I brought him to the house. And I stood there with the husband and wife. And he said, I'm sorry. And he said, it won't happen again. And it didn't happen again. And it never happened again. But that again, that is our responsibility as fathers. Their parents were really upset. Her father was, I think he would have liked to have smacked my son in the head. But we did... That right thing, but when when the father isn't there to do that, right? What do you end up with? You end up with boys, especially. Girls too. They're just running wild, and it's not about black or white or Latino. This is this, you see this. It's a plague in our in, in our country. The man is gone. If you if you're a father and you are divorced. You need to stay involved in the lives of your children. You need to spend time with them. You need to talk to them, right? If not daily, you know, every few days. And you need to be teaching them how to grow up to be godly men and women. But that is your responsibility. Running away from it, man, you're you're, you're leaving those children, I mean, they are vulnerable. Vulnerable to an enemy who wants to destroy them. So final note here. Where are you in the story? Where are you in the Christmas story? Think of this. You have the simple shepherds. And you know what they were? They were men and women. A lot of women shepherds in scripture. Have you noticed that? Rachel was a, shepherd, a shepherdess. And uh, Rebecca was a shepherdess. David was a shepherd. The one thing about the shepherds, they were simple people, they were simple folk, and they were people who knew that they didn't know. So there was a whole lot more to know. And then you got the Magi, call them wise men, philosophers. They were men who knew, but though they knew, they knew there was a whole lot more to know. They would travel over 500 miles to see the babe of Bethlehem. And then you have Herod, evil Herod. Selfish, egotistical, driven by pride, he's he's, he's petty. You know, Herod, Herod murdered two of his own sons. He murdered one of his wives. And a philosopher, a Roman philosopher said, it's safer to be Herod's pig Than to actually be his sons. And he killed his mother-in-law. Some of you may be able to understand that. (laughs) I had had a wonderful mother-in-law. If the people of Jerusalem. They're all disturbed. Ever read that in Matthew? The people in Jerusalem are disturbed. They're irritated that, hey, if the Messiah is born, you know why they're disturbed? Because they understood, if this is the Messiah, man, he's he's going to rock our boats. In fact, he's going to overturn our boats. He's going to disturb our little lives. He's, he's going to interfere with our agendas. He's going to interfere with our game plans. Right? He's going to interfere with our lives. He's going to interfere with our morality. So they were, they were disturbed. And Jesus disturbs people. I don't know if you've noticed this. At this time of the year, people... They love the baby Jesus. They just don't like the big Jesus. Have you noticed that? They love the baby the baby Jesus, right? He's wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's in the manger. He's, he's harmless. But the big Jesus, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The big Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and you're not coming to the Father unless you come through me. He disturbs people. And he disturbed the people of, you would think the people of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish people, they would have been ready for him, and he disturbed them. Then you have Joseph. This godly man, a faithful man. The man who is the protector, the provider, the priest, and the prophet of his new family. A human man. Who could enter into confusion just like us pain, grief, sorrow, and even touch on cynicism. And then you have Mary, beautiful Mary, holy Mary, this young woman who gave herself to be used by God for his glory. So where are you in the story? Even look at the cave Jesus was born in. It was a cave, it wasn't, a, again, it wasn't the nice little wooden nativity stable that you have. I've been in those caves many times. They're dark, been in them in all different times of the year, they're always cold, they're damp, and they smell a little. Does it remind you of anything? How about our souls? How about our souls? Right? And man, he came into my heart and he shined the light and he has been doing a cleanup job. I got to tell you something though, there's still some poop in here. It still can be a little dark, it it can still be a little damp. And the manger manger is you not a stone, wasn't made of wood. Lay some hay in there, the animals would come in, right? Straw, they feed. That's where the babe was rested. The manger is like our hearts. Our soul is a stable. Our heart is the manger. Come, Lord Jesus, and sit upon this throne, this very humble throne. Quite amazing that he would even come to such a humble place, at least for me, and come and sit in our hearts. Where's Jesus in your life today? Where are you in the story? Something to think about, right? Right now you can make a decision to take Jesus into your heart. You can make that choice right now. It begins with a choice. Everything begins with a choice, right? Everything! But you can make that decision. and It's the decision that will determine your destiny. You can make that decision right here this morning to take Jesus Christ To be your Lord, to be your Savior. To say, hey, Lord, come in to my stinky stable. i stunk it up with a lot of sin. Sorry about that. Give you permission to clean it up. And come and sit upon the manger of my heart and be the Lord of my life. You can do that. That's your choice. Most important decision you will ever make. Mine was made around the corner here in an apartment. On a January 15th night, 42 years ago. I was an atheist who became a Christian. Never imagined in my wildest dreams I'd be doing what I'm doing right now. Who knows where God is going to have you and what he'll have you doing in future years because he's got a plan for you. Let's bow our heads. Father we thank you Lord God for your word. Thank you Lord God for your faithfulness. Thank you for your son Jesus being born into this world. And thank you, Lord God, that that manger, Lord, one day would stand upright and be a cross, that he would hang on for six hours one Friday, and take all of our sins upon himself, Lord, and suffer our hell. And then, Lord God, he'd be taken down from the cross and put into, Lord God, a tomb, but the tomb couldn't hold him. And on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. We thank you, Lord, that you're here with us today, the living Savior. We thank you, Lord God, that you have come into our stable, stable of our soul. We thank you, Lord God, that you sit upon the throne of our hearts, that manger. And I do pray, Lord God, that that decision would be made by people today. For your glory and honor, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.